1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this passage brings up a thorny subject for 21st century America, for it deals with slavery. This word that is translated in the ESV, servants, uh, actually refers to domestic slaves. So it doesn't use the general word for slaves overall, but specifically those who serve in a household, as opposed to those who may serve uh, out in the fields or on construction projects or that sort of thing. Now, my purpose in tonight's sermon is to help us interpret this passage in its original context so that we can understand what God is saying through Peter on his own terms. But to do that effectively, there are two topics that we should consider before we dig into the meat of the text itself. Now, the meat of this text is God's call to first century slaves to obey their masters, and the motivations that he gives to empower such obedience, especially through Christ's own suffering on our behalf and the salvation that he offers in union with him. But to clear the ground for that, the first topic we need to discuss is briefly whether the Bible supports the institution of slavery. And second, what connection is there between a first-century Greco-Roman slave and a 21st-century free person living in America? Well, first, the question of biblical support for the institution of slavery. For the Bible nowhere outright calls for an end to slavery. Now, there's a lot that could be said on this subject. Uh, I had a lot more written down at the beginning of this afternoon, and I cut out a huge amount, but I'd be happy to talk more about it after the service if you want to hear more, because it would fill a long sermon all on its own. But at a minimum, be aware of a few things. Be aware that throughout the Old Testament, God commands restrictions on slavery so that the harm slavery can do ought to be minimized, if not outright eliminated. And when it comes to the New Testament, it should be noted that there's a practical reason that there's no call to end slavery, for the church was still too small and powerless to have any political might to uproot slavery. For the scriptures are practical. They 
the Bible addresses only the things that its audience is actually able to deal with. And yet, nevertheless, there are specific ways that the Bible undermines the very philosophical foundations of slavery. First, slavery is not rooted in the order of creation. Greco-Roman culture considered slavery to be a, a category established by the gods. And yet, nowhere in Scripture do we read that God created slavery as a category of human relationship. He created marriage. He created the relationship between parents and children. He creates the church as a family of brothers and sisters. But slavery is not a divine institution. It's a human institution. Second, here in tonight's text, Peter acknowledges that slaves can be treated unjustly here in verse 19. Yet in the culture Peter was writing into, it was not considered that any injustice could ever be done to a slave. For a master could use or abuse their slave the same way that he could use or abuse one of his inanimate belongings, such as a shovel or a rake. It was his right to do with his slave whatever he wanted. And third, Peter addresses the slaves directly as having agency over themselves. For Greco-Roman culture did not consider that slaves even had the capability of moral thought and judgment. In fact, Greco-Roman instruction to slaves only takes the form of speaking to masters as the ones who ought to be keeping control of their slaves. Yet Peter ascribes to the slaves consciousness of God and the ability to choose between right and wrong. And so these are, that's just a sampling of the many reasons why slavery is not directly condemned in Scripture, and yet the Bible does undermine its philosophical foundations. Second, we need to discuss why tonight's passage is relevant for free people in the United States today. For that, we can look to the social context of why Peter is writing this passage here. And before I do this, I want to acknowledge the writings of the New Testament scholar Karen Jobes because she wrote in just a few pages very helpfully on the social context around Peter's admonition to slaves. For in Greco-Roman culture, household order was a public matter and it was a socio-political duty. Now today we realize that healthy families are the building blocks of healthy societies, but nevertheless, the inner workings of, of family units are considered relatively private matters. However, ancient philosophers such as Xenophon, Aristotle, and Plato all wrote these so-called household codes. And in these household codes, they described the way slaves, children, and wives should relate to the man of the house as their authority figure. They taught that there was a divine order to the household and that each person within the household had been divinely appointed to their role. And so to the Greco-Roman mindset, living out these roles was the basis for a strong, orderly, and prosperous society. Now, Peter's letter overall is intended to teach persecuted believers how they can bear witness to a society that is hostile to the faith. And a significant part of that is demonstrating that the Christian faith will not lead to the downfall of society, but rather build it up. So Peter is writing an abbreviated household code here in order to demonstrate the major points of continuity between Christianity and Greco-Roman society. 
yet he also will point out the discontinuities. Well, 2,000 years later, every one of us still plays important social roles, both within the family and out in public. Passages like this one show that it is God's will for his people to live out those roles in every way that it is possible, yet without violating other parts of God's will. For we obey God rather than man. Yet where it's appropriate, we submit to man, where we are not disobeying God. Now, none of us here may be enslaved today, but Peter will still teach important lessons about how to live out our faith in our various roles in society. And so those are the two preliminary observations, for the scriptures do undermine the wicked practice of slavery. And this passage has relevance today because it's an example of living in an orderly society, but doing so uniquely as Christians. So it's time now to dig deeper into what Peter has to say in tonight's passage. Now, Peter gives a simple command for slaves to be subject to masters, even when suffering unjustly. And so we will look then at the motivations for this subjection, ways we can imitate Christ in his suffering, and the unique ways he saved us by his own suffering. And so first we look at the motivations for subjection. Now, Peter begins this section commanding household slaves in particular to be subject to their masters. It says, slaves should be subject to their masters with all respect, even though this may often be a difficult task, for they are to be subject not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, none of us by nature subjects ourselves to anybody, let alone to those who treat us unjustly. And so to give, uh, to, to give empowerment to, to, to this command, Peter names three motivations for being subject even to unjust masters. We have here the fear of God, the grace of God, and the call of God. And so first there is the, the fear of God, that encourages subjection. For literally translated, Peter says here in verse 18, to be subject to your masters with all fear. This is the same word that Peter used in verse 17 when he says, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, as we discussed last time I preached from verses 13 through 17, that submission to human institutions does not depend on personally agreeing with those human authority figures. It doesn't depend on their righteousness. Rather, it depends on God. And so likewise, Peter is teaching here that slaves are to obey their masters, not because they fear their masters, but because they fear God. And so consider what it says in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, where Paul writes, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Of course, the fear of God puts limits on obedience to an earthly master. For if a master commands a slave to disobey God, he must obey God instead. But as much as possible, the slave obeys his master as an aspect of his fear of God. And in so doing, he adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. He accomplishes something so much greater than he could ever hope to accomplish 
uh, by natural strength. And so you too, consider your fear of God as you live out your roles in the workplace, at school, in volunteer organizations, wherever else you may be in society. Consider how it adorns the message of the gospel when you do your duty, even when you're underappreciated or treated harshly. Consider how giving faithful service in hard circumstances demonstrates God's kindness to the world. You may not like those people over you, but you love your God. You serve faithfully because it pleases him. And so we have the command for slaves to obey on account of their fear of God. But next, we turn to the fact that it is a grace from God to suffer unjustly. For God pours out his special favor on those who suffer unjustly for his sake. Now there can be a certain pleasure that comes from suffering for a cause you consider righteous. A rush that comes from feeling that you're in the right and that you have been wronged. Much of our online and some of our in-person behavior can be best understood in terms of seeking out that rush. For righteous indignation has become an incredible social currency over the last couple decades, especially as social media is now even designed to encourage those feelings and to profit off of them. Yet it is not the feeling of being wronged that is the standard that the scriptures set. Translated literally, Peter says it is a gracious thing when, because of the consciousness of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And the way this is phrased suggests a dual meaning. For first, there's the consciousness of God's approval as you endure these sorrows. You trust God's promise that you, no matter what, are accepted in Christ, and therefore nobody can ultimately harm you. But second, Peter's also referring to an awareness that believers suffer unjustly because of the righteous things that they do out of their consciousness of God. For it can never be any credit to you if you suffer on account of your own foolishness or your own sins. Doing evil and suffering brings no credit. It deserves infamy, or better yet, anonymity. Your sense of self-righteousness will easily mislead you into believing you are suffering unjustly when you really deserve it. So there is, we don't put our trust in our own sense of umbrage and our harsh treatment as the standard for the unjust treatment Peter speaks of here. But there is an objective standard. For in faith and life, God calls us all to conform to Scripture It's only in the scriptures that we find the true delineation of right and wrong, of good and evil. It's in the scriptures that we find God's comfort for those who suffer unjustly. In this life, all believers will suffer to some degree for doing good. And this is an example of God's grace. Having looked at the fear of God that motivates subjection and the grace of God through unjust suffering, We look at God's calling to imitate Christ in unjust suffering. For Christ has suffered for you, and you are united to Christ by God's effectual calling if you embrace him by faith. But union with Christ requires suffering as Christ did. Now we make much of God's calling when we think of the way he calls us to faith or the way he 
calls some men to church office. These are exciting ways to be called. But Peter uses this language of calling here to refer to suffering. Now there is good reason to receive such suffering with joy. As we read in Acts 5 that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. So suffering is not an optional or an undesirable feature of the Christian life. It is part and parcel of your calling to faith in Christ. For life with Christ is a blessing, and we enjoy many benefits of life with him. And as part of our calling, suffering with him is one of those benefits. Now Christ suffered throughout his ministry, and God calls us to follow in his steps. He says in Matthew chapter 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more those of his household? If you follow Christ, you will not escape this treatment. You don't have to make a point of seeking out suffering. Act righteously, and it will find you. Well, having looked at motivations for enduring unjust suffering, we look now at some of the specific ways that Peter calls for imitating Christ in his own subjection and suffering, for he is the pattern for us. He is our example so that we follow in his steps. And as we start to consider these matters uh, in verses 21 through 25, we'll see that Peter quotes and alludes to several passages from the last servant song from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, Peter doesn't quote the servant song in its entirety, and yet the parts he doesn't quote serve such important background for the parts he does, so we'll bring those unquoted sections in as we go. Now, in verse 22, Peter cites Isaiah 53, 9, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, it's clear enough that Christ committed no sin. He continually walked in God's ways and obeyed his heavenly Father perfectly. As for the word deceit here, it doesn't refer simply to garden variety lying. It, use, it refers to the use of false speech to gain an advantage for yourself and to harm your opponents. For Jesus didn't tell any false stories about those who opposed him or called him harm. He dealt with everybody honestly, whether they deserved it or not. And we read in Isaiah 53, 9, that as thanks for this, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. His good conduct, his honest conduct, gained him nothing with the world who counted him as evil anyway. As you can see in the way that the religious leaders accused him of colluding with Satan and blaspheming when all his words and works were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Despite all this, he never sinned, and in everything he dealt honesty with everybody. In verse 23, we read that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Jesus was routinely accused of evil. The Pharisees' observation that he associated with prostitutes and tax collectors was not a neutral thing to put on his gravestone. It was a vicious character assassination. And even during his agony on the cross, he was mocked by those who were watching. And yet, despite the verbal abuse he received, he did not offer his own retort in kind. It's true that Jesus had some hard words for some people, yet he never made personal insults or slanders. 
His judgments were always according to God's word. And such remarks were reserved nearly exclusively for the hypocrites who claimed to know God and walk in righteousness, but were in fact far from his ways. Likewise, when Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was on his way to the Passover, the Samaritans refused to receive him in one of their villages. And James and John asked if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to consume the village, and Jesus rebuked them. When he was being arrested, Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Peter reached out and healed that man's ear. And even as he hung on the cross, Jesus asked for God to forgive the Roman soldiers responsible for crucifying him, for they did not know what they were doing. Instead, Jesus, in every way, entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says that he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. Jesus trusted his heavenly Father to the end, and he said as he died, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted God to vindicate him because God is the one who judges justly. And God did indeed vindicate Christ by raising him from the dead. While his enemies, well, his enemies remain in the grave and will suffer judgment at the end of the age. So far, we've looked at the ways we can imitate Christ in suffering. We can imitate him in avoiding sin and speaking honestly of those who inflict suffering on us in not using abusive language toward enemies and in accepting our suffering while trusting that God will vindicate us. But then, beginning in verse 24, Peter indicates several ways that we cannot imitate Christ in his suffering. For in some very important ways, Christ's suffering was 100% unique in history. And these ways are related to the salvation that Christ accomplished for us through his suffering. For Christ bore your sins in his body on the tree. As if it weren't enough to endure the suffering that was heaped on him by his opponents, he also bore the weight of the sins of all his people on the cross. Sin incurs a liability to divine wrath. In a sacrifice, what happens is that that liability is transferred to the sacrificial animal and the animal is destroyed. Well, Christ is the sinless Lamb of God. And he offered himself up. Jesus took the liability to God's wrath for your sins, and he was destroyed for you. No one else in history can do that. And so if you realize that you cannot do anything to repay God for your own sins, if you realize that Christ is the only perfect sacrifice, if you trust himself, if you trust yourself to him for salvation, you no longer bear that liability for your own sins, and you are free and clear in God's sight. But out of this, God causes you to die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore your sin on that tree so that it died with him. Sin no longer rules over you. Instead, you live to righteousness. You live to the righteousness that Jesus exemplified in his unjust sufferings. And so by his suffering, Jesus raises you up to the spiritual life that you require and gives you strength to live 
as an exa- uh, live according to his example in his steps. For by his wounds you have been healed. Apart from Christ, you are sick and dying in your sin. But with Christ bearing your sins and nailing them to the cross, you are healed from your sins. Sin and death have no power over you. And he has brought you peace with God, as we read also in Isaiah 53, 5. Your relationship with God has been healed too, and you will live forever with him. These are the things you cannot imitate in Christ's suffering. He bore your sins on the cross. He brought you spiritual life, and he healed you. But he could not do these things for you apart from his suffering. And so Peter calls slaves to be subject to their masters and endure unjust suffering for the fear of God, for the grace of God, and the calling of God. He provides Christ as an example and also as the one whose suffering on the cross brought salvation. But even though suffering is neither easy nor pleasant, let's not lose sight of what we stand to gain through all this suffering. For Peter says that you were straying like sheep. Apart from Christ's suffering, you may be able to escape suffering in this world. You may be able to walk in a way that impresses the world and avoids the suffering of the cross. But you will be far astray. As it says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And for a sheep, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Domestic sheep have no natural defenses. They have no horns like wild sheep. They aren't fast. They can't escape. A few years ago, a cougar attacked my family's small flock. One died from being eaten by the cougar. Four died from exhaustion or cardiac arrest. Well, a sheep that heads out on its own, as you can imagine, is in grave danger from predators. But not only that, in the ancient world, a wandering sheep would have difficulty finding food and water. They weren't penned up in fences to make sure they stay where the grass is or where the water is, like we have today. Now, if a sheep is a part of a herd, at least altogether they can try to watch out for predators, and any individual sheep is less likely to be attacked. But that only reduces the threat. It doesn't eliminate it. A sheep needs a shepherd. The shepherd knows where the water and the pasture are. He leads them to the nourishment they need. And he is their overseer, or to use a Greek synonym, their guardian. He watches out for predators. He may even have weaponry to deal with any that arrive. We read when David was about to face Goliath, what does he tell Saul? That he had faced lions and bears in the course of his service as a shepherd. And by the grace of God, he did it barehanded. Well, we also read in Isaiah 53, 6, that for our wanderings, God has laid on our great shepherd all our iniquity. Christ endured a great suffering to bring you back to his flock and to be your great shepherd. So I couldn't think of a better way to conclude this sermon than by reading Psalm 23. Note, take special note of how the theme of suffering is woven throughout the picture of the Lord's provision as our great shepherd. So Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that by your grace we have a shepherd who suffered for us. And through his suffering delivered us from sin and death and now watches over our souls. He feeds us. He feeds us abundantly. Father, we pray that you would teach us to walk in the path that Jesus set out for us. We pray that you would grant us the strength and the courage to face down our suffering. We pray that you would give us the strength to endure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.